Allstate looks to unload its Wacker Drive office building. And I'll talk with Crane's healthcare reporter, Katherine Davis, about the future of AbbVie. They're clearly focused on M&A. They are clearly looking outside of the company to bolster that portfolio, that pipeline, and get some promising new drugs under their belt. I'm Amy Guth, and this is Crane's Daily Gist for Monday, February 26th. Are you sick of not being your bank's top priority? We are too. At Wintrust, we take a different approach to banking. We're proud to be your one true banking partner focused on your unique financial goals that's right in your backyard. Whether you're opening your first account, buying a home, planning for the future, or starting a business, we have tailored solutions to get you there. Stop settling and start experiencing a better way to bank at Wintrust.com. Wintrust, different approach, better results. Banking products provided by Wintrust Financial Corporation Banks, member FDIC. I'm joined by Crane's healthcare reporter, Katherine Davis, here to talk about AbV. Lots of news out of AbbVie recently. Catherine, catch me up. What is the latest? Sure. So AbbVie is going through a big leadership transition right now. They recently announced that their longtime and first and ever only CEO, Richard Gonzalez, is going to step down this summer. He is set to retire July 1st, at which point he will join the board of directors, and he will be replaced by Chief Operating Officer Robert Michael. And this is a really big turning point for AbbVie because, like I said, Gonzalez had been AbbVie's only CEO since the pharma giant spun out of nearby Abbott Laboratories. It's also here in the Chicago area. And he has been so instrumental in getting AbbVie to the point it is now. I think, you know, just on, on one of the metrics that we can measure his performance by Avi's market capitalization grew from about $54 billion to more than $300 billion under Gonzalez's leadership. And executing that kind of growth has had so much to do with Gonzalez's merger and acquisition acumen, growing Humira, the once best-selling drug in the world, um, which we know now faces biosimilar competition and is coming under other financial pressures. But Gonzalez is, is really credited with taking Abvi from an experimental spin out into a really competitive pharmaceutical giant. You know, I, I feel like we, we often see when there's a CEO that's been in a place for a very long time, they've kind of created the culture. They've had a long runway to create the culture of a place. What changes might we expect from Robert Michael in terms of leadership style or, or different types of focus? This is a really good question, but I feel that within the specific dynamics of AbbVie, we actually might not see too many differences between the Gonzalez leadership style and Robert Michael's leadership style, primarily because these two have long worked together side by side at AbbVie um, and even before at Abbott as well. And so we know that, you know, Robert Michael has worked underneath a Gonzalez regime, so to speak, for many years. Michael was previously the vice president of financial planning and analysis from 2012 to 2013. And then he, you know, 
gradually worked his way up the executive ranks. He was once chief financial officer, a role he assumed in 2018. And then he was vice chairman for finance and commercial operations in 2021. And a year after that, just in 2022, he became the chief operating officer. So we've seen him sort of grow with the company, of course, as Gonzalez as CEO that entire time. And I spoke to an industry analyst who said he expects there to be a really seamless transition between Richard Gonzalez and Robert Michael, saying that, you know, they have both been aligned on a lot of the strategic growth initiatives for AbbVie, and they expect AbbVie to sort of stay on the track that it's already set in place for itself, especially in this period where Humera is now facing biosimilar competition and the company is more focused on merger and acquisition deals and building a pipeline that will take it to sustainable growth in the future. That's exactly what I wanted to talk with you about next, because it does seem like a really interesting time for this, right? Like Humira was the big star at AbbVie for such a long time. Now that those biosimilars are entering the market that you mentioned, um, tell me about that focus on M&A deals. Sure. So just in the last three months, AbbVie has executed some really important acquisitions. There was a $10.1 billion purchase of Immunogen and then a separate $8.7 billion deal to acquire Cerevel Therapeutics. And at the time of these deals, you know, they happened just a, a week apart from each other, basically. So AbbVie was clearly laser focused on acquiring some companies that it felt could take it into this next phase. And, you know, the executives said it sort of clear as day that these deals will help them bolster their existing assets, but also build up this pipeline, which they say will, quote, create one of the most attractive growth portfolios in the industry, end quote. So, of course, time will tell how successful these uh, acquisitions and that these new drugs are adding to the portfolio will be. You know, we have previously seen AbbVie make some acquisitions and then have to, you know, essentially cut its losses on a drug that couldn't get FDA approval or couldn't move forward, wasn't perhaps as promising as they once thought it was. There's always that risk when pharma companies are doing these M&A deals and acquiring early stage drugs that are still in the development phase. Maybe they've only gone through, you know, one or two clinical trials. They are not approved by the FDA yet. Those deals are, are certainly still a gamble, but I think typically pharma companies are looking at the available research, using their own expertise in, in a specific type of drug development uh, to determine what's worth the money and what's worth passing over. And then talk to me about this new multi-year deal with a San Diego biotech company. Sure. So this just happened minutes before we hopped on the podcast, Amy, um, but Abby announced sort of another M&A move that it's executing as it looks towards that, that long-term growth strategy. And they've entered into a multi-year deal with San Diego-based Tentarix Biotherapeutics. And what this company does is they have a platform to develop both oncology and immunology drugs, which is a sweet spot for AbbVie, which we know has immunology and cancer drugs already in its pipeline. AbbVie is paying $64 million upfront for two of these biologic programs made by Tentarix. And they are also leaving the door open for an exclusive option to fully acquire these biologics later we don't have the price for that yet. Um, that'll probably come if a real deal materializes. But, you know, this is just sort of the latest 
move for AbbVie, right? Um, it, they're clearly focused on M&A. They are clearly looking outside of the company to bolster that portfolio, that pipeline, and get some promising new drugs under their belt. And what will you be watching most as we move towards this leadership transition and then once it once it becomes official? Yeah. I mean, like I said, I think we will see a lot of similarities in Robert Michael's leadership style, but I'll be looking for any clues that there is a different approach or that he is looking at the company's future in a different way than Gonzalez was. We'll also be looking to see how impactful and how successful these recent M&A deals are for the company. You know, we'll be watching some of the research coming out on these drugs, when and if they are receiving FDA approval. And of course, if these drugs hit the market, how that's affecting the bottom line. I think we're also continuing to watch how Humira revenue hits continue to impact the company. You know, generally speaking, analysts are pretty much in agreement that the company has done a pretty good job of mitigating Humira revenue losses by boosting its other drugs on the market. But you know, there is always that risk with Humira. And that's not the only drug AbbVie has that will eventually face biosimilar competition. So we'll, of course, continue to watch that. And AbbVie, like its other big pharma competitors, is sort of in this stage where they, they do put a lot of money into research and development, but so much of their growth story comes from who they're acquiring. And so making those bets as smart as they can is key to the success at this point. Mm, very interesting. All right. Well, it will not be the last time we talk about AbbVie, I'm sure. Um, but thanks so much for swinging by and talking it through today. Thanks, Amy. Coming up after an Alabama ruling, Illinois Senator Tammy Duckworth moves to protect in vitro fertilization. We'll talk about that and more right after this. Want to dive deeper into the topics you've heard here? Read the full stories and get access to all of Crane's award-winning coverage with a Crane's Chicago Business subscription. Crane's Daily Gist listeners can get 20% off a one-year Crane's Chicago Business digital subscription by visiting chicagobusiness.com gist and using promo code gist at checkout. Once again, to redeem this offer, visit chicagobusiness.com gist and enter code gist to get this deal while it lasts. This is the Crane's Daily Gist with Amy Guth. Crane's Danny Ecker reported that two years after buying a Wacker Drive office building and considering a plan to move its headquarters there, Allstate has put the property up for sale. Ecker reported that the Northbrook-based insurance giant has hired real estate services firm Colliers to sell the 10-story office building at 29 North Wacker Drive, according to marketing materials. There's no asking price listed on the more than 133,000-square-foot building, which an all-state venture bought in January of 2022 for $29.7 million, according to Cook County Property Records. 
But as Ecker noted in reporting, it's likely the building is worth substantially less than that today, given drastic interest rate hikes over the past two years and a shift to remote and hybrid work that has shifted many real estate investors away from office buildings. People familiar with the offering who spoke with Crane said they expected bids to come in at just more than $10 million based on recent sales of other downtown office properties, a price that would saddle Allstate with a painful loss. Ecker also noted that the listing is a surprising pivot by a company that signaled its confidence in downtown's post-pandemic future with the purchase. Ecker also pointed out that with downtown office vacancy surging to a record high from companies slashing their footprints, Allstate's acquisition of the building demonstrated its commitment to workspace in the city's urban core. The company said at the time that it might move its headquarters to the Wacker Drive building after selling its longtime North Suburban campus to an industrial developer. But as Ecker pointed out, Allstate has not occupied the Wacker Drive property, which is leased today to a mix of small tenants that collectively occupy about 57 percent of the building, according to the marketing flyer. It's unclear what prompted the company to seek a buyer for the building, and an Allstate spokesperson didn't respond to Crane's request for comment. Aside from its Northbrook main office, Allstate also has space at leases downtown at 444 West Lake Street and in the Merchandise Mart. Prior to Allstate's 2022 purchase, the building was previously sold to an investor for $13.4 million in April of 2010, according to Cook County Property Records, after its vacancy spiked following the Great Recession. Crane's Brandon Dupre reported that Northwestern University grad students reached a tentative contract agreement with the administration late February 22nd, ending months of negotiations and securing raises that would put them in line with their counterparts at other elite private universities. Union members will now vote to ratify the contract March 11th through 13th, requiring a majority of votes cast on those dates to approve the contract. The union represents some 3,500 grad students at Northwestern. The three-year contract would see the minimum stipend for grad students grow to $45,000, up from $35,000 as of its union election in January of 2023. The raise, a main point of friction during negotiations, will put the grad students among its peer institutions such as Yale and MIT. But as Dupre pointed out in reporting, the stipend is just one of 33 agreements reached, including full dental and vision benefits and additional support for international students. In a statement, the university said it, quote, values the contributions that graduate students make to the university's research and teaching missions and said it would share more information soon. Northwestern University graduate workers, the union representing the grad students, recently launched a strike pledge, a step taken to garner support for a strike among its members, foreshadowing what could happen should the school and union not strike a deal. On its website, the union said it attributed the deal in part to its strike threat. The website reads, quote, We saw significant movement across all remaining issues thanks to the supermajority of strike pledges we reached. Dupre further noted that the union won its union election on January 12th in a landslide victory, with 1,644 students voting for union representation and only 114 voting against. Crane's Rachel Herzog reported that two New York firms that specialize in distressed shopping centers have made their entry into retail on the Mag Mile. Picking up the mostly vacant property at the base of the Warwick Allerton Hotel Chicago at 701 North Michigan Avenue. 
Herzog noted that a joint venture of Namdar Realty Group and Mason Asset Management bought the 22,900-square-foot retail space from its longtime owner, London-based Grosvenor, in a deal that closed February 8th, according to an announcement from real estate brokerage Jones Lang LaSalle. The buyer paid about $23.1 million for the property, or just more than $1,000 per square foot, according to Cook County Property Records. Herzog noted that the deal was likely an opportunistic play for the firms, which have turned profits from distressed shopping malls to acquire a high street retail property at a lower basis as Chicago's North Michigan Avenue shopping corridor recovers from the pandemic's blow to downtown foot traffic. The property's only tenant is Rolex, which occupies a 2,240-square-foot ground floor retail space and 2,040 square feet of basement storage space. The property's former longtime tenants, luxury fashion brands Brooks Brothers and Stuart Weitzman, vacated after the onset of the pandemic. Herzog further reported that Grosvenor bought the retail space for about $17.3 million in 2022, or about $755 per square foot, according to previous reporting from Cranes and data research firm MSCI Real Assets. The firm most recently refinanced the property with a $21.6 million mortgage from Iberia Bank in March of 2020, according to MSCI data. And as Herzog further noted, the deal could be a sign of transaction volume starting to pick up after a months-long slowdown of commercial property sales amid high borrowing costs and decimated property values. Transaction volume for retail properties ticked up nationally in January, rising 116% from the same month in 2023, though prices were down 3.6% year-over-year, according to a report from MSCI. New York-based Namdar owns several Chicago-area malls, some also in partnership with Mason Asset Management, including the Stratford Square Mall in Bloomingdale and the River Oaks Center in Calumet City, also according to MSCI data. Most recently, Namdar acquired the Louis Joliet Mall in Joliet in June of 2023 for about $31.4 million. Lee John Greco reported that as in vitro fertilization comes under fire in Alabama, Illinois Senator Tammy Duckworth is touting her bill that seeks to protect IVF access across the country. For backstory, the Alabama Supreme Court's recent decision that frozen embryos can be considered children has already created a chilling effect for IVF providers across the country who fear they could face wrongful death lawsuits. On February 20th, Duckworth launched a slate of tweets that have continued throughout the week criticizing the decision and reviving a bill she introduced in January that would prohibit restrictions to access what she described as assisted reproductive technology, including IVF. Duckworth said on X, the social media platform formerly known as Twitter, quote, we were right to be worried that IVF could be next. She continued, quote, this ruling effectively labels women in Alabama who undergo IVF as criminals and their doctors as killers. Congress must pass my bill to establish a statutory right to access IVF and other ART services nationwide. John Greco also noted in reporting that Duckworth's bill argues that Congress has the authority to supersede state laws affecting fertility treatments under its powers outlined in the Commerce Clause of the U.S. Constitution. In a January 18th statement, Duckworth said, quote, Without the miracle of IVF, I wouldn't have my beautiful baby girls. Her statement continued, quote, There are so many other people like me who have had trouble getting pregnant and relied on IVF to start the families of their dreams. Pennsylvania Representative Susan Wilde introduced a companion bill in the House of Representatives in February. 
John Greco explained in reporting that the path for any bill on reproductive rights is likely to be rocky at best. While congressional Democrats have been quick to trumpet legislation still brewing in committee, they failed to codify abortion rights into law after Roe v. Wade was overturned by the Supreme Court in 2022. Duckworth's IVF legislation would face a Republican-controlled House, and an evenly split Senate would need 60 votes to override a filibuster. But still, as John Greco also noted, Democrats have jumped on reproductive rights as a surefire way to activate their base ahead of the 2024 election. Though the Supreme Court's Dobbs v. Jackson decision struck a blow for the abortion rights movement, the case also drove voters to the polls in the 2022 midterms. Democrats scored victories across the board that cycle in gubernatorial, Senate, and state races, as well as for ballot measures in Michigan and Kentucky. Since then, John Greco noted, statewide abortion access ballot measures have passed in other states, including one that enshrines access to abortion in Ohio's state constitution. That's Crane's Daily Gist for now. Check in on our continuous news feed at chicagobusiness.com. Thanks so much to today's guest, Crane's healthcare reporter, Katherine Davis. You can follow all of our conversations on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to get your audio on demand. Don't forget to subscribe and please rate and review Crane's Daily Gist. Our show is produced by Todd Manley at Earsight Studios. I'm Amy Guth. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll meet you right back here next time.